This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. Today on Second Wind, another treat. I know I say that every time, but again, totally a treat. I have Morgana Ray, and she is the international number one best-selling author of the book Financial Alchemy, 12 Months of Magic. There it is. <laughs> She's also known as the pioneer in personal development and is best known to be the world's leading relationship with money coach, which is what caught my eye. And Morgana is a teacher and a speaker and has been in so many outlets like ABC, NBC, Fox, CNN, NPR, and she's been in the Wall Street Journal. And she even wrote a column for a women's magazine, a national women's magazine, and the article was called Life Magic. Morgana shares the stage with experts like Deepak Chopra, Ariel Ford, and, and just so many others. If you go to her website in the bio, I'm like, I can't put all that in there. We'll be on here forever. But Morgana is all about making an impact in the world through her journey. And for the last 10 years has been leading the ultimate money goddess retreats in there in Bali and Mexico. And I, you know, I say, I'm going to try everything. I don't know if my husband will go for that, but I'll try. However, like with all second winders, there is way more to Morgana, her gift, her journey, her calling. Her story is incredible. So welcome today, Morgana. And thank you so much for agreeing to be on Second Wind. Oh, thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. So there is like so much we probably need to do a few episodes. And let's start with what you told me when we talked. And I couldn't even believe it. And my head, since we've been talking, since we have spoken, I should say, my head has been spinning with all, all these different things, just little one-liners and things to think about and things that you did. So tell us about that thing that that coach said to you that really changed your trajectory. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, I call it the big cosmic joke that here I am famous for coaching relationship with money and Strangers in airports in other countries call me out and say, hey, are you Morgana Ray, the money honey lady? Which is, you know, wild to me because, first of all, money was never my primary focus. It still isn't. It certainly wasn't anything I was good at. I got here because I was so impressively bad <laughs> at making money despite everything, despite the education and the certifications and the movie star clients and beautiful marketing and being a great student and nothing, you know, taking the classes, having the coaches, doing everything that you're supposed to do and actually doing it really well. And living in Los Angeles, one of the most expensive cities in the world, and at my bottom, struggling to make $100 a month. You can't really live on that. No, oh. no, that doesn't, that doesn't pay oh, for scary. anything that doesn't yeah. pay for cable, <laughs> that doesn't wow. pay for food or, or housing. So I was, and it was devastating because I was doing everything that was supposed to work. I had the testimonials, I had a reputation, I had the marketing materials, I had people who wanted to hire me and I'm just living on borrowed money, going through my life savings, credit card debt, and flying out of town every month to take a new class as if, oh, that's going to be the answer. That, that will be the will whole do it. That's, that's what I need. That's what I need to get to this, right? So, right. And it's, it's horrible because not only are you not making the money, but you're spending money on top of what you're not making. And everything I was doing wasn't working. And it wasn't my fault, 
but it was completely me. And having been through this myself and then coaching thousands of people over the last few decades, I have come to see a pattern that if you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing, and we're not just talking money, we're talking love, health, whatever that block is for you. And if you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing, and you've been doing it for a while, and you aren't getting the results you should be getting, it is my experience that you are probably protecting yourself from what you want, which isn't going to make any sense on the surface, because why would you protect yourself from money or love or good health or whatever you want? And that's actually what we're going to dive into here. And I didn't know that I was doing it until I was in this really dark, get me off this planet. I'm done playing. I've done everything and I'm out of out of stuff to do, which is a really scary place. You know, I had just run out of hope and run out of ideas and I was exhausted and hurt and angry and just there was nothing left to do and no reason, no reason to play anymore. I finally knew what I was good at. And the the mean kind of cruel response was, okay, you finally found your purpose and you can't survive on it. So many people can probably relate to that. Oh my gosh, you said that so well. Yeah. It's a, it, you get in your head like, well, I know this is my purpose, but I'm never going to do it the way it I need to. feels me like yeah. the universe felt mean and I did not feel liked or loved by the universe. And I really didn't like it back. And it's a dangerous place to be when you run out of hope. And suddenly I'm a terrible employee. So that wasn't going to work well either. So um, I'm in this really dark, despairing place. And I still have a coach. I, I don't have enough money for rent, but I still had a coach. That's very interesting. I'm a very, very stubborn person. I will not give up on anything while I'm failing. I have to succeed at something to decide whether I want to do it. Like, how do you know until you get what you want, if that's what you really want? I don't know that I recommend that approach, but that's been my life pattern. I just refused to give up on a loss. So I I was still doing everything and I had a coach and I have to say, thank goodness, because that saved my life and set me on the path that I'm on. And by the way, I've been a coach for 27 years. So I have a real perspective on the industry and the like how it's changed over the years. Yeah. Coaching is not telling somebody what to do. That's what mothers do, you know, or bosses. That's not coaching. But I had a really good coach who, instead of telling me what I was doing wrong or what I should do, and because we tried that, that wasn't going to work. I don't know where this came from, but I showed up on our next call in this like dark, despairing place. And he asked me the weirdest question that changed my life forever, which was, he said to me, Morgana, if your money was a person, who would your money be? And in that moment, I instantly saw a person and it was nothing I ever imagined or expected. In that moment, my money person was this big, scary, dirty, violent biker dude, all bad, who terrified me because I could feel he was a bad guy. He caused fights. He was dangerous. He was not on my team. He caused pain. And I could imagine myself at a live event with my eye on him all the time to create maximum distance between the two of us. And that was my giant light bulb moment that everything that I had been doing my whole life, you know, get good grades, get certifications, get this training say these words, get this vision board, get this mantra, go to that person who will wave her hands and change your money DNA. It doesn't happen. And you know, none of it, nothing I could do consciously in good faith could work if my whole system was, you know, to protect myself from danger. And this is, this is a really key point. We know that the prime directive of every human being is to protect us. 
That's why, that's why our heart beats and our lungs breathe without our having to think about it. Why when something, when a lion jumps out, we run because everything in us is, is to serve the prime directive to protect us. Now, sometimes that self-protection isn't doing a really good job and we're protecting ourselves from something we need. And then we get all judgy on ourselves. Oh, I'm my worst, own worst enemy, self-sabotage and all that ridiculous nonsense. It may look like that, but it really isn't. It's just, you know, your, your subconscious self has a job to protect you, doesn't always do the best job of it. And to change that pattern, we could talk about money stories and money beliefs for the next 30 hours. And it would be very interesting, but it wouldn't change anything because it's the conscious mind isn't where our behavior and our results come from. It comes from someplace a lot deeper. So it wasn't until I looked at money as a person that I could see what was going on in my subconscious because a person is so much more real Money is sort of an intellectual exercise. It's an abstract concept. But when we talk about relationship and we want to see what the relationship really is, because we have a real relationship with money as if it's a person already. So if we make it visible, then we can see what we're dealing with and what the problem is so we can change it. Um, We inadvertently give money energy all the time from before we even knew what money was oh because like if I get that new bike for you know like if I get that somebody buys me that that'll make me happy then I'm loved the universe loves me it gave me something it's it starts it starts with our parents they are our first experience of money Do they love me? Do they protect me? Do they value me? Do they keep me safe or not? Or maybe a little bit of both. Right. But and every time we're told we can't afford it, it made money the bad guy. So over a lifetime, every experience of disappointment, of shame, of limitation, of abuse of power gets internalized into our relationship with life. And more specifically, our relationship with money, because money represents love and it represents value and it represents safety in the United States. It represents our right to exist. Good luck getting the medical care and the shelter and the stuff you need to survive without any money. It's going to be really hard. And the way people value you is going to have a lot to do with money. There are some people who shouldn't get the time of day, but wow, they have a lot of money and they're treated like royalty. And it's, and we all see it. So especially, and I'm really talking to, you know, the sensitive people out there, like the do-gooders and the idealists, the sociopaths, you really don't have to listen to this because you're not going to get anything out of it. This is well, you're probably not listening issue. to this podcast anyway. Let's yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's <laughs> another one. But those of us, you know, who care about suffering, Like, I know you rescue animals. So animal abuse is going to be like a huge thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. Or or animals that can't be taken care of because there aren't, our society didn't really set up the resources. And we can say the same thing about people and there's environment, you know, there's, you can load it all on, but I would say start with the really personal and then load on the bigger issues on top of that. But I digress because I'm a digressor. Uh, <laughs> okay, so big, bad, scary monster dude that there. I just knew that there was no way that I could let him get near me, and I shouldn't. And you were able he, to make, but you were able to make that um, correlation between not getting the success you needed because the money person you were trying to avoid at all costs. Yes, I lucked out. I kind of jumped directly to this accidentally. I can't do it that easily with clients. We have to do some digging first to make it work because after I had my transformation, we'll get to that. Then I had all these clients and I was like, ooh, they're human beings. They have money issues. (laughs) Whoa, what a concept. Honestly, you know, the reason I focus on money is sort of my pain door, why people come to me. It's just the beginning of what we do, but it is really important because it's sort of the excuse, not sort of, it absolutely is the number one excuse 
that human beings give for everything we can't have, do, or be. And when it no longer is the obstacle, then we have to deal with all the real stuff underneath. And that's actually, for me, the fun stuff. You know, love, life purpose, lifestyle, legacy, right? But first, we have to neutralize, to use like very, you know, military euphemistic language. We have to neutralize the monster to make money safe and even more than safe, make money luscious, wonderful, yummy, delightful, happy and loving. For me, because I was already in the state of not just, I thought it was about money. Now I know just from coaching for so long that it's actually never really about money. It's about what money represents. I felt unloved, unvalued, and unsafe. Okay. And that's why when this guy showed up, he showed up and I could feel him. And it, since I was calling him money, because my coach had said if money was a person, I was like, that? Well, if that's the guy, no wonder. I didn't really know what was going on until I reverse engineered it to make it work for other people. I know a lot more now than I did then. So I had this biker dude who I couldn't let near me because he would kill me. He would. So I had to get rid of him. And that created a, a new problem. This, by the way, is like the trajectory of every turning point is Yay. Oh, fuck. Now what? <laughs> and you can, you can edit that out if, if I'm no, speaking out of school. Not. I yeah. told you. It's organic. I got what I want. Oh, fuck. I got what I wanted. Now there's a new thing that I have yeah. to deal with, okay. which is I got rid of the monster, but I live in LA and I just got rid of my relationship with money and I have to have a relationship with money. Right. But if you've ever Some been in kind this, of relationship, yeah, the yeah. only, the only kind of relationship with money I knew was rejecting. It's like a bad boyfriend who tells you that you're not good enough and cheats on you all the time and and tells you that he's the best you'll ever get and you don't even deserve him. Not that any of us have ever had that experience. Mm. Um, (laughs) But I hear, right? (laughs) So yeah, I just, I didn't want to jump back into that. But I felt this really weird emptiness. Like, I never knew that the biker was there until he was gone. And then I could feel, oh, my God, he's been there my whole life. And everything feels different now. And it feels empty. It feels like a vacuum. And I better fill that up before he comes back or some rando monster walking down the street, right? Yeah, But I felt like, you know, we all know that nature abhors a vacuum and I had to fill it with something. So it better be something good. Okay. So I asked myself, well, who could I want so much that I would want this person in my life, even if it was money? This is a very, very important frame, not because it's money, because as soon as you get into a sort of relationship of I want you to do this. I want you to do that. What have you done for me lately? You're back in the monster relationship that totally disempowers you. So we're not looking for, you know, a new money Santa or fairy or anything like that, because that's, you know, as I, I coached a guy maybe a decade ago who showed up with a really hot, cute money in a tight dress who kept telling him he wasn't good enough. And I was like, that's not a money, honey. That's a money monster in a, in a cute dress. So, so I asked myself, well, who would I want so much? And being the ridiculous raised on Disney princess movies fool that I am, I instantly saw this tall, dark, handsome, romantic, sweet, cute guy in a tuxedo holding a bouquet of red flowers because he wanted to woo me. Oh my gosh. You're Prince Charming. Oh, and by the way, I had a boyfriend at the time who I was really in love with. So for all of you who are in a relationship, because this comes up all the time and it's one of my favorite things, I'm just like trying to cram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Decades into like an hour. 
I can't, but I'm doing my best. And I have a website and a book and lots of resources for all the stuff that's being left out. Okay. So I love it when a client says, feel like I'm cheating on my partner. I love that because that means that this new person feels so real and yummy that you feel like you're cheating on your real human flesh and blood person with your imaginary friend. Wow. The good news is your imaginary friend doesn't have a body, but your partner does. Okay. <laughs> and if you bring that erotic amorous energy to your real life partner, they tend to like it. Mm. Yeah, it can it can be really wonderful for your actual primary relationship. It's, it heals a lot of stuff going on there. And and if you aren't in a real life relationship, this energy is super duper attractive to not just money, but to partners. Also, I have a lot of clients who got married and a lot of clients who had one foot out the door in their marriages, Mm -hmm. because that's what money anxiety does, who have been on decades long honeymoons as a result of this process. But okay, enough with this digression. So I met the cute guy. Yeah. And he too felt like he had been there a long time, but I had never experienced him before. It was like he was trying to get in and I was pushing him away because the bed's not big enough for the three of you. Interesting. The money monster will cock block your money, honey, every time. How many coaches say that? Uh, I've not heard that. Yeah. So it makes sense. But it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You you the the trauma will just drown out this loving person who wants to be with you. So I could feel that he wanted to be with me and I didn't know how. Cause mm-hmm. I'd been protecting myself from money one hundred percent unconsciously for so long. Things that happened as a child, I made decisions about money that I didn't wasn't aware of until right. you know 20 years later. So when I was, you know, in my thirties already. So since I didn't know how to let him be with me, the great thing about now it being a person, I just asked him and I, because I could feel that I've been breaking his heart for a long time, which is actually really important to be aware of because it means that you have the power in the relationship. You are the gatekeeper. All these years you thought money was the gatekeeper. Ha ha. (laughs) No, it was you. So I asked my money, honey, what do you need from me so you can stay with me? Which, by the way, is a very different question than what do you need from me so you can love me? Right. The love is already there. It's unconditional. And I say that because uh, there's a wonderful video somewhere on YouTube from somebody who really, really likes me, who's describing my process and got that wrong. And I can't tell her that she got it wrong because she's talking about how much she likes me. So for the rest of you, (laughs) your money, honey, already loves you. You don't have to do anything to earn the love, but you do need to make it possible for this person to be with you because you have that power. So I asked the question and he said, I need you to love me and I need you to stop treating me like a monster. And I could feel the heartbreak and the vulnerability because he's a person Mm -hmm. worthy of love. And he doesn't feel anything like money. He feels like love or she or they. Plug in your preference. I'm using a he because mine is a he. So he told me that. And I, you know, that Reddit website thing where people ask, am I the asshole? And, and I, and, you know, in retrospect, yeah, I was, I didn't know it again. It's not your fault. Your money monster is not your fault. You didn't make it up. You picked it up from your environment. You picked it up from society. Very often you picked it up from family generations of trauma. It's not your fault, but the good news is it's your responsibility, which means you have the ability to change it. Yay. Yeah. So I could see how I had been pushing this person away, not loving this person, breaking this person's heart. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a loving partner. So he wanted me to love him and stop treating him like a monster. So I was instantly thinking, well, what does that look like? How have I treated him like a monster? And it occurred to me, 
oh my gosh, every time somebody asked me, what do you charge? I got so uncomfortable. I would freak out. I would get these crazy ideas like, well, Jesus wouldn't charge. And honestly, I wasn't there. I don't know. Jesus had a bunch of sponsors. <laughs> so, so was it kind of like you weren't letting, like if, if somebody was asking you how much do you charge and you were feeling kind of negative, tight stuff going on, was that you saying to your, your money guy, your money, honey, you know what? Stay in the background. I don't really want to bring you forward for this. I was saying I'm ashamed of him. Yeah. I'm ashamed of him. Go, go back into the house. I want nothing to do with him. Interesting. I, yeah, that's it. And, and think of that. If I were to say to you, Wendy, you disgust me, you repel me. I'm ashamed of you. I wish you didn't exist. I'm only in a relationship with you because I need something from you. Mm. Would you want to stay around? How would that make you feel? Especially if you loved me. Wow. So, and that's what I was doing every time I, I, I had such contempt for this partner who wanted to be with me, who wanted to save the world with me. And how does that that transform into like real life? Well, what would happen is transactional. Yeah. My, well, first of all, the idea that you shouldn't charge to help people is problematic because it means only people who cause harm get rewarded. And that's not the world I want to create. So for my value system and my money, honey's value system, we agree that when I charge that investment should be a force of good for the person I'm working with. If I think I'm taking something from somebody or I'm harming somebody that I can't do that. That's not okay. So as long as I thought I was harming somebody by letting them invest. Oh, you were thinking you were harming somebody by asking them to pay you. Yeah. Well, now my perspective and we're jumping way ahead is simply all I do is give somebody a choice and give them the respect of you're an adult. You get to decide what's good for you and you get to say no. And I don't love you any less. No harm, no foul. We can do this or not. And if we don't do it, I've got a book. I've got stuff on my website. And the great thing is people hire me anyway. And they hire me. I just enrolled a $50,000 client yesterday. And I was honestly having this person convince me that this would be a good match because full transparency. And I've been charging this and even more than this for over a decade. The great thing, and and also I have a track record of everybody who invested at this level made it back in multiples. Like so I I have that level of confidence, which makes it easier to say this is my mm-hmm. fee, but you could do this instead, or you could do this instead, and you decide. And but I always have with a new client the oh shit, like, yay, oh you know, fill in the expletive oh, of your so, choice. Yeah. I have to make sure that I deliver. It's And by the way, for those of us who like want to be the do-gooders, charging more, and I'm not saying jump to my fee or any, you know, crazy number. It has to be in integrity. And it's great to like have that conversation with your money, honey, to find it. And it was gradual for me where the number would get bigger. And then there would come a day where I would say whatever my fee was, and I'd feel this like crushing chest sinking feeling of self-betrayal. And it would be like, oh, oh, I can't charge that anymore. It's gotten, it's gotten too small. It's making me feel depleted. Crap. I have, I have to grow bigger. But the great thing about it is it inspires me to make freaking sure that whatever I charge is worth way, way more. And you don't have that feeling when you don't have skin in the game and you're just giving it away for free. And in that respect, giving it away for free is not really ethical because you're kind of cheating the person of your best. Gotcha. And that's that's just my perspective. If I am doing something for free, do I give everything I can? Like I'm trying to right here. Yeah. But there's another level of the 
oh, fuck, I can't screw this up because I can't hurt this person. So I have got to make sure (laughs) that it is the best investment of their life. Okay, so... Right. Um, we were on. So you okay. just, you just said exactly. You just answered the question. Yeah. Right? So Yay. what I'd love, yeah. So what I'd love to do is go back a little bit and talk about Morgana Ray. Cause you have, I mean, you were a ballerina, you were an actress, you majored in religion. You had a horrific accident um, where you could have died. Uh, and you had to claw your way back. So share a little bit. You grew up in in uh, in an interesting dynamic with your mother and father being what divorced when you were one or something. Well, they split in my first year. And by the way, that was a really good thing. Yeah. Don't stay together in a really bad marriage to protect the kids because their being apart saved my life. They went yeah. through the formality of, of legally divorcing when my mom remarried when I was five. And I went on the honeymoon with them. Fine. <laughs> yeah. So my mother has is is really, really challenging. You know, drug addict, narcissistic personality disorder, maybe bipolar, I don't know, but violent. <laughs> would call me a monster, tell me that I was less than a zero because she did more for me than I did for her. And it took me until I was like in my 40s to go, wait a second, but that's what parents do. Parents do more for the kid because it's supposed to be that way. Right. And she wanted me to be an equal caregiver and take care of her. And honestly, I saved her life when I was 12 and she attempted suicide. But to be fair... My mom is also brilliant and charismatic and at times was the best mother on earth. It's that that sort of borderline and bipolar extreme, which was very dangerous for me. And so being able to move to my father's house when I was 14 really rescued me. There I became a latchkey kid, which is so much easier than walking on eggshells with an unpredictable parent (laughs) who's breathing down your throat all the time. And then about two years into that, or almost, yeah, two years into that, I was riding my bicycle to school and I got hit by a car a couple blocks from my house by a girl who went to my school too. And she freaked out and fled the scene. And a neighbor called- And left you like in the road. In the middle of the intersection, yeah. Um, and a neighbor called the paramedics and I was in the hospital for a week and comatose for most of it. And so it affected a few things. It affected memory. So to this day, like my husband writes memoirs. I couldn't because my, my life is aside from little moments is sort of a, is a blank. And my friends remember my life better than I do. They're like, Oh, do you remember when you danced on the table at that Greek restaurant in the West Village in New York City? And I'm like, I did. <laughs> like, did I, I have fun? I just want to know. Yeah, did like I, I didn't know that I did stuff like that. Really? Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, so okay, I'll take your word for it. So when I woke up, I couldn't keep up in school. I went from being this easy A student. By the way, there is so much arrogance and hubris in being a happy, successful person that I didn't know until I lost everything. So I had judgment about kids who didn't do their homework or do well in school. And suddenly my brain couldn't concentrate or remember things. I couldn't stay. I had trouble staying awake, reading a whole page. It was a very, very useful experience. And by the way, I believe all of our difficult, traumatic, or even victim experiences humanize us. They're sacred. They give us the humility and capacity to respect the experience of other human beings. And without that, we can be monsters without any. You said, yeah, I think you said in, you had a little radio show for a couple of years that, uh, what was the name of that on my notes? On my notes. Morgana radio. Yeah. Morgana radio. Okay. And, (laughs) um, I did a little research with that and you had said with your guests that you both had come upon the conclusion that 
when you go through these traumatic experiences, it's almost like your rebirth mm-hmm. and, and ready to take on the next. Yeah. So that was really interesting and, and, and creates genuineness and authenticity. There's an unfortunate tendency in the personal development world, in the coaching world. A lot of people call it, call it law of attraction. And by the way, I'm buddies with half the people who starred in The Secret. And I, I know them as real people. There's an unfortunate tendency to be afraid of unpleasant feelings, of air quote, low vibrations. And what that does oh, is that- then you're going you're gonna to make them come to you, right? It that blames the victim. It's like, it's like the Bible. This tendency goes back a lot of thousands of years because yeah, me, the religion like superstitious, major, right? It's like being well, Job's comforters like talk about sarcasm. They are called his comforters, and how do they comfort him? They say, "Gee, Job, you must have done something terrible to get all this tragedy raining down on you." Where we, the readers, know that he didn't do anything wrong. It just happened. And to this day, oh, you must have done something terrible if you're struggling. And I don't believe that. Mm. I believe that that these things happen and they're a doorway. They're an opportunity for your next level of self-love and empowerment and capacity to care and help others. Yes. Marcus Aurelius in Western tradition and the Buddha in Eastern religion both said pretty much the same thing, Mm -hmm. that what matters isn't what happened to you or even why it happened to you. All that matters is how are you going to respond? Because that's the only power we have. So my husband yesterday, so funny that you said that. Yeah, Wendy. Well, it's what you're given and it's not and I said it to my sister, Corey, who everybody would know from this podcast was my brother when I first found him, but now is female and identifies as female. And we were having this discussion and she was like, so there are people, you know, that have bad things happen. And I said, yeah, but we all have bad things happen, but then it's how you choose to deal with it. Well, what if they don't have the tools to deal with it? And that. I'm so glad that your sister said that because we don't always have the tools. Exactly. After my accident, I couldn't sleep for two years. I was suicidal daily. My mother became, I, I actually, I was living with my dad, but I was getting so far behind in school that I moved back to my mom's house. My mom goes, you know, hot and cold and she's like great mom, bad mom. And, and at the moment she was great mom. So I moved back there and then she turned Mm. and because she didn't, you know, to, and, and I have a lot of compassion for her being a mom. Isn't easy. Right. Especially when you can't help your kid because her brain is broken. Gosh. Yeah. So I think she was freaking out in the way she freaks out is to get violent and abusive, you know, and I don't think she has a choice because we all do the best we can. I was in such a bad state that I started sleeping on friends' couches and ultimately was left her house, right? Yeah. I found a therapist. I interviewed like 12 therapists before I found one I liked who felt like safe and like she could help me. And Eventually, I was such a danger to myself that I asked to be hospitalized, which was a really, really unpleasant experience. You were like, what, 16 years old? I was 17. I had the car accident about two months before I turned 17. And then I had two years of not being able to sleep and wanting to die and just struggling. I changed high schools. The new high school was, by the way, wonderful. I don't know. I showed up halfway through 11th grade and these kids who didn't know me from anything became my friends. And I never even knew why, but they were just like, oh, we like you. Literally, one of them said, we like you. We're going to be your friend. And, and I was being invited to the school parties and I never, ever understood why, because like, we all like grow up with these tropes of high school is terrible. And these, this high and the prior high school I was at was very, very snobby, but this high school was super friendly. And honestly, what kept me alive was high school and the goal to graduate. But I did hospitalize myself for a month and came back and while I was gone, they voted me most mysterious senior at my high school. (laughs) 
Because yeah, nobody you, knew you, what was going you on. Never, yeah, you never told anybody. You never told any of these kids. I don't know how, I don't remember what I, how much was known. I don't think a lot of it was known. I'm not terribly secretive. I'm not, I tend not to be, I tend not to be secretive, but not everybody needs to know because yeah. that's like a burden to them. Mm-hmm. When When I was in this hospital for however long my insurance would pay, which was probably three weeks. They told me that I couldn't move back with my mom, that it was too dangerous. And so I ended up my senior year living on somebody's dining room floor. And one of the worst moments was when the teenage daughter in that house was making out with her boyfriend on the couch in the living room next to the dining room. And I could hear him whispering, she lives here. And yeah, I did on the floor. Um, But it was, it let me get to high school so that I could graduate and go to college in Massachusetts. And it's not all bad news. Honestly, I would never repeat the experience again. And I stop riding my bicycle. But while I was going through this horrible, horrible stretch of years, my intuition started doing really weird things. Like I started knowing things before they happened. And I started having visions. And I even had one spooky, weird moment in that hospital way back when, where for some reason, a nurse said, pick a number between one and a thousand. And I blurted out the number. Mm -hmm. And I terrified her because I got it right. She looked at me like some kind of, you know, witch. Yeah. A thousand chances, right? One in a Yeah. I just, now if I, if you went to Vegas and I had to get it right and I'm trying, it doesn't work that way. But if I'm not trying, it just comes out. The intuition really woke up then and never went away. And the humility and the compassion never went away. I learned a lot more about the human experience. I learned a lot more about the brain. When we're talking about tools, I didn't have tools to fix my broken brain. Right. And because I grew up with an addict mom, I grew up with a lot of her very well-intentioned, but not helpful friends Mm -hmm. telling me that because my mom was an addict, I was an addict who had just never happened to take any drugs. So they scared me. Mm-hmm. from taking antidepressants or getting medical treatment. And so I was trying, just like, you know, with the money story, I was trying everything. I was trying diets. I was trying meditation. I tried rebirthing, which is where they make you hyperventilate. And a lot of people love that. And like every alternative thing on earth And it wasn't fixing it. Anything that I tried wasn't fixing it. And I had this moment where I was just so ready to die that I said, yes, I would take an antidepressant because to me, it was a form of suicide. I will kill myself with by taking the medicine that my doctor prescribes. So I took a pill that night and I woke up with hope for the first time in years. Wow. Now... I hated the side effects and I, it didn't make me feel all better or numb or happy. I think some people had that experience to me. I was still really sad and depressed and sometimes suicidal, but I had breathing space in between. Right. Instead of every day, it was every few days or every few weeks or every few months. And it gave me the breathing space that I could work things out in therapy and I could have time to heal until the day came where I didn't need it anymore. And I was very happy to get rid of it because I didn't like the side effects. And I share that because again, in my community of personal development, there's a lot of stigma around medication. Mm -hmm. Is it over-prescribed and abused? Probably. I'm not an expert on this. Mm -hmm. But when your brain isn't producing what it needs to produce and you're in crisis, I think it can be miraculous. Absolutely. There's a place for it. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And you got yourself, you, you graduated as a merit scholarship person. 
Yeah, I gra- that's Smith College. Yeah, I graduated on- as a National Merit Scholar in Math yeah. and Science. Like, how did that happen? Crazy. You got yourself to Smith College, which is yeah. competitive. And you graduated with a BA in religion. Yeah. Why religion? Well, a couple of things. I was very curious about why we believe what we believe. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know where those beliefs came from. I've also been my whole life and still am asking these big questions like, what are we? Mm. What are we human beings? What are we? Mm. Are we just a sack of cells and neurons or are we souls? What are we? And what is this universe? Because there are a lot of different theories about that, that we live in. And ultimately, how do we have a better experience while we're here? Mm-hmm. So I was curious. And then I took my first class in, in Asian religion because you can't tell because it's so dim, but I'm pointing my finger right underneath. I have this cast iron Buddha from the Tang Dynasty, China, because my grandmother was born and grew up in China. And you can see, I can see a little gold leaf is left. So it was probably gold at some point. And I was this fat, chubby social outcast as a kid. Like I, I was the one everybody bullied and beat up on because I was chubby. So people were teasing me for being fat, but I also had this vague awareness that a bunch of other people were worshiping this guy who was fat. Hmm. And to my seven-year-old brain, that was like, that's not fair. What's going on? (laughs) And I was still curious by the time I was in college. So I took a class in Asian religion in in like very body shaming United States to find out how could people worship a guy who can't, you know, manage his weight. And I got the answer. Oh my gosh. Which is that dieting can be very distracting. Starvation and obsession with that kind of stuff is very distracting and that's not enlightenment. So Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, made a decision to stop feeding his ego with all this ascetic, you know, self-denying achievement and just cut it out and focus on what really matters. So he decided, okay, I'm not going to be skinny anymore. Mm -hmm. And it also in the region of China that it's from, it also represents wealth and prosperity and, and abundance. So it has these positive values too. Right. And you actually had your own battles with eating. Yeah. And, and, and that was kind of interesting. Well, to learn about you because you've really actually dabbled in all kinds of issues that people would have. You, as one person, didn't just have this experience or this experience. You had a whole bunch of them, which makes you so unique. Really? I thought everybody had like everything. No, not everybody gets hit by a car and has the the kind of mom you had and has to deal with brain injuries and then has eating disorders and is suicidal. And I mean, it helps me relate absolutely to more clients. Like my clients tend to be these overachieving women. I like to call them the Hermione Grangers, the smartest person in the room while that kid with the glasses in the corner is getting all the credit, which can be crazy making. The more I experience, the more I can appreciate the traumas that come up in other people. When did you write your book? How did that, how did you, well, I guess first we want to know, how did you decide to go into coaching? You graduate from college. When I, yeah, a series of boyfriends. Yeah, but you know, I'm I'm kind of I was raised on Disney princess movies and I don't think I even needed that. I was I think I I told you when we first spoke that I I chased Brian Patterson under the piano at his fifth birthday and he was the older man. So I was, you know, looking for my prince charming really early on. Yeah. <laughs> and I returned to Los Angeles after like a really bad relationship in Northern California to, there was a boy who had hurt my feelings when I was 12, who I was giving his second chance when I was like 22. And by the way, wonderful guy. We're still friends. And I moved down to LA and I did, I still like, I went to college cause I didn't know what to do with my life. I graduated from college and I still didn't know what to do with my life. 
I thought I would be a graduate student and a college professor, but I had a boyfriend who said that would be stupid. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. That would be stupid. I won't do that. Because, <laughs> oh yeah, because, you know, I was a young woman and I wanted to be loved more than anything else. And that, that didn't work out. So I moved to LA to somebody to live with somebody who's really nice to me. And he said, well, you know, why not be an actress? There's a whole sub story that my grandmother co-created the original Renaissance pleasure fair, ye old Renaissance fair. I grew up at the fair saying, yay, verily and forsooth and wearing great costumes. And it was totally romantic. And I had a series of super smarty boyfriends and tights who went to Harvard. And the LA boyfriend was one of those Harvard boys in tights. And so he knew me when I was an actress at the fair. And he said, well, you are a good actress, become an actress. So I became an actress, did not succeed. And while I was not succeeding, I got a flyer for a coaching program for the entertainment industry. And I went through their program. And had what made you, what re- made you decide to do it? You get this flyer. What's the moment that made you say, oh, I should take this seriously, not throwing it in the trash? Oh, um, because an actress I knew, Sharon Lawrence, who became, we had her breakthrough on NYPD Blue, but I knew her when she was like me and not anybody. Right. Beautiful lady, really good actress, but just a peer, you know, mm-hmm. just hustling and doing showcases and trying to get a break. So when she, her name was on the flyer recommending this program, it's, and by the way, anybody out there in business, it's that social proof when somebody, you know, recommends something that goes a million miles. So I gave it a shot because Sharon recommended it. Her name was on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's amazing. That was, that was it. You know, I was like, well, if she said that it works, then I'll give it a shot. And I really, really liked it. I had a big breakthrough. And I also thought I could be a coach for this. Stay tuned for the rest of Morgana Ray's story on how this flyer to learn how to become a coach changed her life forever. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile made you think and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.